Now, would you turn, please, to John 17? Uh, John 17, and we come to verse uh, 11 uh, in our studies of this, what Cyril of Alexander in the 5th century called the high priestly prayer, because our Lord is making intercession uh, for his uh, people. So, John 17 and verse 11, and we're allowed, as it were, to listen in uh, to eavesdrop on his prayer to his Father. So, John 17 and verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and have not Uh, And not one of them has been lost except the one of destruction uh, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Uh, As I mentioned, the uh, Lord's Prayer, this is the Lord's Prayer, can be divided into three. And I don't know if you're in the habit of marking your Bible. Um, Some people are a bit superstitious about that and uh, have reservations about doing it. Uh, I think it can be helpful. If you're using the NIV, you don't need to because the verses are already divided up for you. But in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. So you could draw a little line after verse uh, 5 just to indicate the change. In verses 6 uh, to 19, he prays for the disciples. So after verse 19, you could put a little line uh, just to indicate the change. And then from verse 20 uh, to the end uh, of the chapter, he prays for all believers in every age. In our last study, we began to look at the second section, which runs from verse 6 through to 19, in which Jesus prays for his disciples. Now, after identifying the disciples as, in verses 6 to 10 as those who have received the word, he then makes two prayer requests uh, of his Father for the disciples. In verses 11 to 15, he prays for protection. Holy Father, keep them in your name. And then in verses 16 to 19, he prays for perfection. Sanctify them by the truth. Protection and perfection. These are the two great burdens of our Lord as he comes before his Father to pray for his disciples that they might be protected in the world and that they might be perfected by the Word. Now, this morning we want to look at the first of those when Jesus prays for protection for his people in verse 11 through to 15. So first of all, then, Jesus is praying for protection. I want you to notice the need of protection. Jesus prays there in verse 11 that the, uh, the Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. The NIV says, protect them by the power of your name. He is concerned about his disciples 
and he prays for protection for them. Now, there are three reasons, I'm sure we could think of more, but three reasons identified in the prayer by, uh, by the Lord Jesus and what he prays for uh, as to the reason he prays for protection. The first is the leaving of Jesus. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world. The NIV says, I will remain in the world no longer. The Lord Jesus was going. He was returning to his Father. He would soon, very soon, be arrested, tried, and crucified. He would rise from the dead, and 40 days later, he would ascend into heaven and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. And all of that would restore him to the glory that he had before the world began. Remember verse 5? And now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's going back to a place of glory. The only difficulty was that he was leaving the disciples behind. While he was with them, he kept them. He strengthened them. He protected them. He encouraged them. But uh, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, uh, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Our Lord looked after the spiritual um, interests of the disciples. He fed them from the Word of God. He taught them. He encouraged them. At times, he chastised them. Uh, and now, as he's leaving them, he entrusts them to his Father. And you can understand the reason for that. So that's the first reason Jesus prays for the disciples' protection. He is leaving them. Secondly, because of the hostility of the world. Look at verse uh, 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Now, if you go down to verse 14, you see the attitude of the, uh, of the world to the disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Do you notice that? I have given them your word, but the world has hated them because they're not of the world. The disciples were not of the world. They were different to the world. Jesus had called them out of the world. They had been given the word of God, which immediately distinguished them from the world. And the world hates anyone or anything that challenges its thinking, its philosophies, and its ideas. It hated Jesus. They took Jesus and they crucified Jesus for no other crime other than what he taught and what he said. They hated him because he challenged their world and he exposed their shortcomings. And the servants cannot expect, the disciples couldn't expect any treatment different than that was, to that which was meted out to Jesus. And at the most, they would kill them and at the least, they would reject and ridicule them. And the same is not only true of the disciples, the same is true of believing people today. They are hated because they are different, because they do not look the same, think the same, or behave the, the same as the world. B.A. Carson calls this the intolerance of the tolerant, that they will tolerate anything and everything but truth, but truth. There's a new book uh, out, um, recommended by Alistair Begg, and it's called Being the Bad Guys by Stephen McAlpine. 
Uh, and the subtitle is How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't, Being the Bad Guys. Well, that's us, the bad guys. We used to be the good guys, not so long ago. But because of our stand on, on marriage between a man and a woman, because of our, our stand on uh, uh, sexual identity, uh, we're, we're despised. We're seen as the intolerant ones. So Jesus prays for protection because he isn't leaving them because of the hostility of the world and because of the reality of the devil. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The authorized version says from evil, and the text could be taken both ways, but in the context it seems that evil one is the best translation. Protect them, keep them from the evil one. We have an implacable enemy who has sworn his intention to tempt, to test, torment the people of God until he can do it no longer. The devil is a defeated foe, but his final sentence has yet to be carried out. And so with ferocious fury, he uh, uh, unleashes all hell against those who follow after the Lord Jesus. Jesus John tells us in 1 John 5 and 19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And while he has the freedom and the power and power to assault the people of God, all his energies will be directed to that end. While the disciples uh, were in the world, uh, they are of interest to him. When they were, before they were called, they were of no interest. But soon as they, they responded to the call of Jesus to follow him and began uh, that uh, course of discipleship, they became marked men. The devil had them in their sights. And so Jesus, knowing the power of the devil, the weakness of the disciple, uh, disciples, prays for protection. So, so here then are, are the disciples, and, and Jesus uh, prays for them because of their vulnerable situation. And we are in the same situation. Jesus has left us. He's in heaven. The world is hostile to us. And we have an enemy who is determined to trip us up and cause us to fall. But we have a great God and a great Savior, a Savior who at this very moment, just as he prayed for the disciples, is making intercession for us. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Do you, do you realize that, that Jesus is before his Father's throne, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, and he's praying for you? What hurt, what harm, what sin and temptation we have been delivered from that we know nothing about. That we know nothing about. That we are oblivious to because of the intercession of the Lord Jesus for us. The need for protection. For the disciples, the Lord was leaving them. They were in a hostile world and the devil uh, was their sworn enemies. Second thing, I, uh, second thing I want you to notice is uh, the areas uh, for protection. What areas does Jesus specifically pray for the twelve? Now, I think there are three areas identified um, by Jesus. The first is their relationship 
with one another. Look at the end of verse 11. That they may be one even as we are one. Do you see that? That they may be one. Our Lord is coming and praying for protection for the disciples. And he prays for protection as far as their relationship with one another is concerned. Now he returns to this theme later in the prayer when he prays for all believers. And we'll look at that in more detail at the time. But it's interesting to notice that when Jesus is praying for protection for the disciples, one of his chief concerns is division among them. He prays to the Father that they might be one, that the unity that they know and they experience might reflect the unity that exists between the persons of the Godhead, that they might be one even as we are one, that the intimacy and communion that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit may be reflected and emulated in the relationship between the disciples. You see, it's the great tactic of the devil to cause division and disruption to weaken the witness of the church. And so our Lord prays for unity among the disciples. And if our Lord prays for unity among the disciples, should we not like, uh, not, uh, should we not, uh, like Paul tells us in, in Ephesians, to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace? If he prays for unity, should we not make an effort to be part of the answer to that prayer? Love covers a multitude of sins. And the Christian community is to, dis, to be distinguished by a gracious spirit that forgives one another as he has forgiven us. Unnecessary division and dissension undermines the witness of the church. And it is something that the Lord actively prays against. How grieved he must be. How grieved he must be and he sees the church that he purchased with his own blood disrupted by selfish attitudes and dissensions. So that's the first thing then, the, the area he prays for, their relationship with one another. Secondly, he prays about their perseverance in the, in the faith. Perhaps we shouldn't so much say a perseverance, but preservation. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Holy Father, keep them uh, in your name. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Jesus had not failed with Judas. He was never one of those that the Father had given to him. He was uh, literally a son of destruction, or as the authorized version, a son of partition. Calvin translates it as son of hell. Now, you remember when we were looking at the deity of Jesus, we talked about the title son of God didn't simply mean that Jesus was derived from the Father, but that he had the nature of the Father, that he had a divine nature. And so if you call somebody in New Testament times the son of a pig, you weren't insulting his father or mother. You were insulting him. You were saying that he had the nature of a, of a pig. And, and to call Judas the son of destruction or the son of perdition or the, uh, a son of hell indicates that he had a hellish nature, a destructive nature, literally a son of lostness. 
that, that his nature was never renewed. He never had that new nature uh, planted in him. So Jesus never lost Judas. He never had Judas. But now he prays that the Father would keep uh, those that had been given to him. And the Father loses none of all that has been given to him. He keeps them securely in his hand, his powerful, omnipotent hand. The true believer cannot and will not be lost. To suggest such a thing would indicate that God had failed in his purposes. Um, it's the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War. Um, I'm old enough to remember it. And I remember that uh, interview with Brian Hanrahan, the BBC reporter who was standing on HMS Ark Royal. And the Argentinians had boasted that they had shot down a number of uh, RAF jets. And uh, so the person uh, in London asked Brian Hanrahan, uh, was that true? Had RAF jets been lost? And Brian Hanrahan's response was, I counted them all out, and I counted them all in, and not one has been lost. I counted them all out, I counted them all in. And here's the shepherd, and he's looking over his sheep, and he's counting them, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. He stops. One's missing. One's gone. There's, 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 there should be a hundred. And he leaves the 99, and he goes after that one sheep until he finds it and brings it back, rejoicing. Dear dying lamb, uh, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. If we're truly converted, we can never be lost. So, in spite of the leaving of Jesus, in spite of the hostility of the world, in spite of the reality of the devil, no one can make him his purpose forgo the hymn writer says, or sever my soul from his love. I, to the end, shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure than the glorified saints up in heaven. They're, they're more happy than I am, perhaps as you are as well, but they're not more secure because you're held in his hand. So the uh, areas of protection, our relationship with one another, our perseverance in the faith, and then our witness in the world. If we're not of the world, why does Jesus leave us in the world? Well, look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Why does the Lord, why did the Lord not take the disciples with him? Why did he not just take them back to heaven there and then? Why does he not take us to heaven straight away and spare us from a life of difficulty and opposition in this world and hatred by the world? Why does he not just take us home to heaven? Well, we've got to go down to verse 18 to see the reason. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them 
into the world. Jesus had come into our world on a mission sent by the Father to reveal the Father to the world. On his leaving the world, he was leaving his disciples in the world to carry on that task. As he had been sent, so in turn he sends the disciples. Now, this is why he prays for protection in the world, why he leaves them in the world, that they might take the gospel to the world. That's why he leaves us as Christians in the world. This is why in conversion he doesn't take us straight to heaven, immediately into glory, but he leaves us in the world that we may, uh, may be lights to that glory and to that grace. Jesus prays for protection that we might be effective witnesses in a perishing world. Our God is a missionary God. He sent his Son into the world, and now he sends us into the world. In a very real sense, the church exists for mission. The church exists for evangelism. Why, if Jesus prays that the church would uh, uh, take the gospel into the world, then we should be taking the gospel into the world. Every, every Christian should be interested in mission. Every Christian should be an answer to the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, where he has a burden and a desire to take the gospel uh, into the world. Jesus prays for the protection in these three areas for the disciples, their relationship with one another, their perseverance in the faith, and their witness in the world. So we have the need of protection, the areas of protection, and then the means uh, of protection. How is it that the Father protects these disciples? And how did Jesus protect them? Well, look look at uh, verses 11 and 12 again. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them, notice this, in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. That's a very strange way of putting it. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, we looked at this a little last week. That name is used in its Hebrew sense, its Semitic sense, that name was not just a means of identification, that you had a name. It was a a, a means of revelation. It was was a means, it was, if you like, a description. So do you remember that that great name, a covenant name of God revealed in the Old Testament? What is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament? Yahweh or um, Jehovah. And so Moses is standing at the burning bush and he says, I suppose, suppose I go to these people and they say, um, what is his name? And, and God says, I am who I am. That's his name. That's Yahweh. That's the name. Jehovah, that's the name. I am who I am. But that's not just a revelation of a name. It's a description of his character. That he is the eternal. Not he was or he will be. He, he is I, I am. He is the self-sufficient, eternal God. And, and his name was revealed, his character was revealed in his name. And so when Jesus prays 
that the disciples would be kept in his name. It's all that God is. It's all the attributes that God has, that all that God is would be employed to keep these disciples in the world. Jesus had been given that name. He had been given that power to keep these disciples while he was with them. And now he prays, since he's going, that the Father would keep them in his name. I just want you to think about this for a moment. That all the attributes of God, all that God is, all the power that God has, is employed to keep his people secure. Isn't that wonderful? That we are held in the hand of an omnipotent, all-powerful God. Can the devil snatch us from his hand? No. Can the world snatch us from his hand? No, we are eternally secure in him. Do you remember uh, Jesus in John 10 uh, talks about uh, the sheep and he says they're held in the Father's hand. And he says they're held in my hand. And the Spurgeon says there is this double grip of omnipotence that holds the believer securely. That we're held That's why the NIV, incidentally, translates it by the power of his name. Sometimes we feel so vulnerable and so weak and so helpless. But an almighty fortress is our God. He is the all-powerful God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, Proverbs tells us. The righteous run into it and are safe. We are held by omnipotence. But there's more here. Not only are we held by the power of God, but uh, Jesus just hints at this in verse 14. But we're kept by the word of God. I have given them your word. The word of God is a a powerful instrument in, in, in keeping uh, the people of God. Through it, they're nourished. Through it, they're strengthened. Through it, they're built up in their faith. And, uh, and, and by it, believers identify themselves. So this is why the Word of God is such uh, under constant attack from the evil one. It's as old as the Garden of Eden because Satan came uh, and said to Eve, did God really say? Did he really say? Question of the Word of God. And then you remember Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That voice thunders from heaven. And then in the temptation of Jesus, um, we have the devil coming and saying, if, if you are the Son of God. Questioning the Word of God. But in the temptation of Jesus... How did Jesus answer? How did Jesus respond? It is written, it is written, it is written. He withdrew the sword of the Spirit and he slashed the devil and his arguments in pieces. And so, 
uh, the Lord prays for the protection of his people, and the instruments, uh, the, the, the means of answering that prayer are, uh, are twofold. The power of God that we're held by omnipotence and by the word of God that we have something to sustain us, to feed us, and to strengthen us. What a wonderful God we have. So that's the means of protection. The need for protection, the area for protection, the means of protection, and lastly, the result of protection. I just want you to notice this. I find this, this really fascinating. Look at, look at verse um, 13. Um, uh, in verse 13, um, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have, what is this, my joy fulfilled uh, in themselves. The, the NIV says that my joy, uh, that they might have the fullness, that they might have the fullness of joy. Jesus prayed this prayer, and he prayed it audibly so the disciples would hear it so that they might be filled with joy. Not interesting. He could have prayed it secretly, silently. Although I, so we tip when you're praying, always pray out loud because the sound of your own voice actually concentrates your mind and focuses your mind and helps you to keep your train of thought. But that wouldn't have been a problem for Jesus, of course. But Jesus prays this prayer audibly that they might have his joy in themselves. Do you see, do you see the point of that? He's not praying for joy. He prayed this prayer audibly that they might be full of joy, that they might have the joy. You see, to know that our high priest is actually praying for us and is actually interceding for us is a source of great joy. Does it not, did it not thrill your heart this morning just as you were thinking about this to know that, that Jesus is praying for you, that that you would be kept by his name and by his word, does that not fill you with joy? Now, that tells us something very, very important, that joy is not dependent upon circumstances because their circumstances were difficult, because the Lord was leaving them. The world was indeed hostile to them, and the devil was against them. But yet, in the midst of all that suffering and pain, they would experience joy just in knowing that Jesus was praying for them. What a comfort that is, that joy is not something. Joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is outward, and happiness is dependent upon circumstances. But joy runs deeper than that. That's why Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always, not sometimes, but always. Because joy is, is a disposition of the heart. It's something that we experience in spite of outward circumstances, and the, uh, the world might be against us. The devil might have us in our sights. Our, we may not feel necessarily the nearness of the presence of Jesus, but, but nevertheless, we have joy because we know that he's interceding for us. 
great illustration of that is Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby went blind when she was just five years old, and she went on to live uh, another 90 years, so she lived until she was 95, and she wrote some lovely hymns, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done, So Loved He the World That He Gave His, his Son. Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus, my blessed Redeemer, sing worth His wonderful love proclaim. All the way my Saviour leads me, what have I to ask by uh, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Some beautiful hymns. But when she was eight, my eight years of age, okay. When she was eight, she wrote this. Oh what a joyful soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. I cannot and I won't. So sometimes we feel a bit overwhelmed by the opposition that we face in the world, by the trials that we encounter in life. But to know that we have a Savior in heaven a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, as the writer to the Hebrews says, who has actually touched with the feelings of our infirmities, to know that he is in heaven praying for us at this very moment. What a joy. What a comfort. What a blessing that is. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. You know nothing of that joy. Your life just crumbles apart when you face difficulties and hardships and joy is something that's alien to you and joy is something that needs to be brought to you. Proverbs 18 and verse 10, he is a strong tower that the righteous run into and are saved. And I would say to you, run into his name, trust in him, believe in him and know the joy that he alone can bring. Amen.